Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Pauman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss the debt ceiling deal and a quick note about the Killdozer episode from several years ago. More to come on that if you have no idea what I'm talking about. But first, let's go to Target and buy some Bud Light or not do any of those things, because apparently that's what you're not supposed to do right now. Uh, There's these boycotts that have been happening, most of it coming out of uh, first Bud Light being, I think, the big one. Uh, They had a small partnership where they had sent some personalized Bud Light cans to Dylan Mulvaney, who is a trans activist and TikTok star. And the reaction to Bud Light doing this from certain parts of the political right was pure outrage and a call to boycott Bud Light. Uh, And uh, one has to acknowledge that this has been, I think, more effective than a lot of people probably imagined it would be. I, you know, I've been around this world long enough to have heard calls for boycotts of all kinds of different things from the uh, from the right, and just one of the realities of, I think, the nature and the orientation of the political right in the United States is that they're generally not the boycotting type, like that kind of organization that needs to go into boycotting a business like that typically just does not end up manifesting itself in the same way uh, and kind of effectiveness that it does on the left. But one must acknowledge, if you look at the way that Anheuser-Busch's stock price has gone down, if you look at the way that they put multiple people from their marketing department uh, basically on a uh, kind of a leave or some kind of a hiatus, it was a misfire, at least from the point of view of understanding who the market for Bud Light is, who are people who Again, I think, and I'm doing some conjecture here, don't care a whole heck of a lot about this as an issue. I think a lot of consumers of Bud Light are, don't, aren't animated in the same way as, say, like a Matt Walsh from the Daily Wire is about this. But they're just kind of tired of the issue. Um, and they are tired of what they perceive as having the issue pushed into their faces on a very regular basis. Uh, there are other incidents of this that we can also dive into, one of them being Target. And there, there, and there are market differences in exactly what we're talking about that these companies did. Uh, Target, in this case, it was over the merchandise, the clothing that they had available for Pride Month. It is June. It is Pride Month. Um, that... Uh, originally had been reported as having kids like bathing suits that were made for tucking um, for people who are uh, transgender and and have not transitioned. Turns out that none of the kids clothing or swimwear had any of that, but adult versions of it did. Um, This also turned into a boycott of Target. 
or call to boycott, boycott Target. Uh, and the other one that I will mention is because I think in kind of declining order, these get to me a little bit more absurd. Uh, the other most recent one was somebody discovered that since 2020, Chick-fil-A, you know, God's chicken, has had a vice president of diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, as far as I can tell, you know, I'll, I go to Chick-fil-A not infrequently. Nothing seems to be different there. You know, they still say my pleasure when you stay, say thank you. Their corporate mission, if you look, is still to give glory to God is the first thing that it says. Uh, but nonetheless, the most obvious failure of one of these attempts at a boycott was trying to get the political right to boycott Chick-fil-A. That one was probably never going to pan out. Uh, I give all of that as prologue to the conversation that we will have about both the role of business um, and what social issues like this have to do with the role of business, as well as the merit of the idea of boycotts in response to things like this. So I throw it open there. All right. Well, first of all, a theological point. And that is that all chickens are God's chicken, uh, just as everything in the world belongs to God. God alone is the absolute owner of all things. Um, this is uh, a corollary uh, to Abraham Kuyper's doctrine of sphere sovereignty, that only God is absolutely sovereign. So, too, only God is absolute owner. Uh, we are just stewards of the things we own. There is a social responsibility with our property. That's I'm glad you set. made that point yes. because— um, I, one need only try the spicy chicken sandwich from Popeyes to know that that is also clearly God's chicken. So it's it's very a very very important point. Oh yes, um, and so, but when it comes to social responsibility, uh, we have to answer the question: Well, what is it? Um, and I, as people have heard me say on this podcast in the past, uh, I agree with Milton Friedman and his very unpopular, although rarely actually read article, the social responsibility of business, is to increase its profits. Um, it's New York Times Magazine article. It's short. You can Google it and find it. We'll drop it in the show notes. You it's should a thousand read it. words. Please read it because everyone who talks about it hasn't. There, yes. there, there's this old bit from Family Guy where Rush Limbaugh was the guest and Brian is all fit to be tied about it and he wants to go down to Quahog Mall where Rush is signing books to give him a piece of his mind and he he unloads on him and Rush asks him, is like, that's very interesting, Brian, but uh, have you actually read anything that I've written? And Brian's answer is, well, no, but I have read things that other people have written about the things that you have written. And I do not approve of the things that I have read that other people have written about the things that you have written. So you can solve that problem for yourself. We, again, will put it in the show notes. Just read the Friedman essay. Yep. Um, and if you want like a shorter version, uh, I did actually write about Chick-fil-A back in 2019 um, when it was discovered that they, they were changing some of their uh, charitable donation choices. And people looked at this because they moved away from uh, the, the Salvation Army and I believe a Christian athletics fund of some sort, uh, both of which were under criticism for their hiring practices uh, related to LGBT issues. And so people took that as a signal of Chick-fil-A, you know, betraying their Christian values or something like that. Um, and my take was very different. My take was the social responsibility of Chick-fil-A is to make delicious chicken sandwiches. Um, and uh, I'm disappointed they were giving money to anyone. Um, that might sound strange because I just said that God owns all things and therefore our property has a social responsibility. Um, but the point isn't that 
the people who work for Chick-fil-A and own Chick-fil-A and benefit from it have no social responsibility. It's that Chick-fil-A as a company is contributing something good by being a successful business. And this is what is so, so often missed. We have a great little book, which I highly recommend, called The Good That Business Does in our Christian Social Thought series here at the Acton Institute. Um, and I, I highly recommend that one as well to get a sense of this. It deals with Friedman a little bit and the difference between shareholder and stakeholder theories and the firm and that, that kind of thing. Um, but a lot of the criticisms and a lot of the, the disappointment, a lot of the company missteps, they all derive from this presumption that the good a business does is something other than the business that a business does. Um, I, I, I'm reminded, this is somewhat out of context, but it is, I think, relevant, of uh, Calvin Coolidge. I believe it's his speech he gave on the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, where he said, the business of America is business. Um, some people criticize that as like an overly simplistic here, you know, here's old silent Cal making a profound statement, which is actually a tautology, but he's right. Business is business. And in fact, if you really want a business to be a social business, you can incorporate it as a B Corp. Like there, there are legal frameworks. If you want your business to be more than just about the bottom line, fine. But what's good about Chick-fil-A? Well, they take good care of their employees. Um, they are closed on Sundays. They give everyone a, a day off based on their values. Uh, they're Sabbatarians of some sort. Um, and their restaurants are clean. Um, their chicken is high quality. Um, you may like it or not. Um, that's fine. Um, so the, the people being upset about, you know, Target, whatnot, I mean— Target's going to stock what they're going to stock. Um, they stock all sorts of things that I find distasteful for a variety of reasons. Just like a lot of stores, I might still shop there on any given day. I'm not sure. Um, but so I, would, I, I, I hope people will take a step back and realize, you know, Bud Light, I guess their social responsibility is to keep producing beer that I probably will never drink because I'm a beer snob from Grand Rapids and we have tons of great alternatives here. But, um, but I, do, I do drink some mass market beer. It just has to be named for lunch meat or have won a blue ribbon in the 19th century that they're still touting. <laughs> um, uh, but in the meantime, business does something good. Um, it creates wealth uh, if it's profitable. Uh, that is why its social responsibility is to make a profit, because everyone is better off when business is doing well. I know that that sounds like a, a crazy paradoxical statement in the anti-business climate we live in, especially in pop culture uh, and everything else. That unless your business is donating to X cause, whatever, um, it's not it's not really a good business. But all that's really doing is mechanizing your consumption into a form of virtue signaling. Um, if you want to be virtuous, you should practice some ascetic disciplines and work on your heart, not eat at the right place. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't care about where you eat, where you shop, what beer you drink, that sort of thing. Um, and this is a good lesson, I think, for those companies that people, consumers have values too, and those values matter. Um, and people certainly have the right to eat where they want to eat, drink where they want to drink, shop where they want to shop. Um, so I'm not, I'm not criticizing them in the sense of saying, how dare they boycott? Um, that's, that's their right. You know, consumption is a choice and it's an opportunity cost situation. If you're like, hey, I've been wanting to try that Popeye's chicken sandwich and now's the time. Yeah, go for it. Um, I hear it's great. Um, I want to try it too. Um, but don't pat yourself on the back saying I'm such a good person because I didn't shop at Target or because I did eat this particular extra holy chicken sandwich. Um, 
pat yourself on the back if you are a good spouse and a good parent and a good friend and a good child. Um, if you respect your elders, if you love your neighbor, if you are involved in your church or other religious community, um, those are the things that make for a person to be good. Those are virtue, right? Courage, prudence, modesty, uh, the other one. <laughs> um, anyway, you know that you, you, you get the point. I don't need to, to keep lecturing. Um, but people need to understand that there are just different sectors of social responsibility. So I don't look for Chick-fil-A to uphold the law because that's not their job. Um, they look to the government, just like everyone else, to uphold the law. The state needs to do that well. That's its social responsibility. Um, if I want to help the poor, I think the primary role for that are families, churches, charities, um, people involved in communities that actually know people that have those contacts. Um, that That is their raison d'etre. They're, they're called nonprofits for a reason. Uh, they survive on donations. They are not driven by the profit mo- motive, just as in essence of what they are, because they have a, a higher mission. Um, that doesn't mean that they are somehow better than the business world. The business world is just its own sector of social responsibility and has its own logic to it. Um, and I, I really hope if listeners would take one thing away, um, and especially if business executives would take one thing away from this, uh, it is that there is absolutely nothing wrong with just being a good business that takes good care of its employees and provides a good product. You don't need to do anything else. You don't need to follow along with the latest Hallmark calendar trend and have a special flashy marketing campaign. Just have a good product and people will buy it. So Dylan gave a very good overview. I'm going to drill deeper on a couple of things. One of the things that Eric pointed out that is very unique about this case is boycotts are usually not effective in terms of affecting revenue. What they are effective at is raising profile of certain issues, certain activist groups, those sorts of things. Um, this has been more effective than, you know, getting people to not place on city, <laughs> um, as the late, now late Tina Turner did. Um, however, you have a question of, of why. So I wrote a column for the Detroit News, I think a year ago, about Disney boycotts, because um, there was some talk about boycotting Disney about a year ago. And the Southern Baptist Convention led a boycott of Disney back in the 90s for some seven years that did not affect revenue, that did not drive any policy change whatsoever. This was America's largest Protestant denomination that was helping to coordinate, among other uh, religious groups, a boycott of Disney that had zero effect. Yet now we are seeing a boycott that is dramatically decreasing revenue. And the question is why? And I would put it down to transaction costs. What you have, you can go to any, any grocery store that sells Bud Light, will also sell Coors Light, will also sell Miller Light, will also sell Michelob, will also sell, if you're lucky, hams in those sweet, sweet fresh waters, or they'll sell PBR, or they'll sell any number of products that you can easily replace with. All of these products are similar style, lagers. Um, The other thing you have is in every bar in America where you can order a Bud Light, there is also 
always at least a Miller Lite on tap, if not also a Coors Light. So transaction costs are really low. Information dissemination is very easy. And this is a social media-driven phenomenon here, this, this boycott. This is not led by an established institution, like, let's say, the Southern Baptist Convention, which led the boycott um, against Disney in the 90s and early 2000s. So this is something very different, very organic. There's also something very interesting with how this happens. And Megan McArdle, I think, wrote uh, a, tw- a Twitter thread on this that was interesting is – you know, why would Bud Light do this? Bud Light is not a product that you think would have a lot of overlap intuitively with, let's say, trans activists. This is just not of all of the products you could name in the world that there might be an overlap. This might be the last product you had mentioned. Why? Part of the reason is because the incentive structures for advertising executives, particularly of declining brands, which is what Bud Light is. Bud Light has been getting, is is still a huge market dominant player who's getting eaten alive from both ends. On the one, the high end craft beers that since President Carter's deregulation have increasingly been coming onto the market ever since the late 70s. On the other hand, you have on the other end you have the seltzer products, which are now all of the rage, and particularly all of the rage among the ladies. So Bud Light is increasingly uh, smaller and smaller brand segment. Now, your what did, what's your incentives look like as someone who is now developing advertising for a product that is in terminal decline? It's not going to be to raise revenue. It's to manage the decline. And so all of a sudden you have a question of what happens when the interests of the corporation itself are at odds with perhaps the career interests of someone in advertising. Because if you're not going to to add to your resume increasing sales, what are you going to bring? You're going to bring an attention-grabbing iconoclastic campaign that maybe aligns with the political sensibilities of many people in America's elite institutions. And I think this is what you had here. You had an executive who was bored with managing ads for a terminally declining brand and was seeking to do something to get noticed, to make a difference that was not about the good of the business was looking for meaning outside of service to her firm in her work. She was looking to make a name for herself. And I think, you know, this is this is a classic problem that we've talked about in terms of government before. When we talk about Yuval Levin has talked about this extensively, that when we use institutions as our platforms rather than as things to be of service to, this is very disruptive. Now, this in particular individual was laid off as a result of this. I have no doubt she will get another job because this was a very high-profile, if disastrous, campaign. Um, and sometimes, you know, we've talked about this before. What does P.T. Barnum say? You know, there's no publicity that's bad publicity. As long um, as they spell your name right. As long as they spell your name right. <laughs> 
So you have a couple of different threads going on with these stories. And so what will be interesting to go going forward is to take a look at what does social mo- uh, media mobilization do in terms of boycotts? Because here we have a case study of taking something that was a strategy people would use to wa- raise awareness about issues, but that is actually at this point driving revenue down in a serious way. And maybe... I mean, my theory is transaction costs are pretty low for this product. Transaction costs for co- for Target are likewise pretty low. Target is a big box store. There are plenty of big box stores out there where you can get all the sort of things that one would get at Target, um, often at better prices. <laughs> um, so again, transaction costs are really low, and it will be it, it will be a, a sort of never-ending war of all against all if this remains, and if corporations continue to look to look outside of their core business competencies when you have an increasingly polarized, politically polarized consumer base that is increasingly able to mobilize and share information. This creates a great incentive to return to what the proper social responsibility of business is, which is to make excellent products to deliver for their workers, employees, and shareholders. I want to come back to your point about the nature of this kind of marketing campaign in a moment here. But uh, one, I, I have to say, I appreciate that we have uh, marked off the bingo square on the act and unwind bingo card of the Yuval Levin reference. And it didn't come from me this time. <laughs> so uh, it's always good to change it up. Um, I think one of the problems for me in all of this is the way that also these these things lay traps for the people who are the advocates on the side of the boycott. And I'll give an example of this, especially when we are dealing with a company, Bud Light is a product of Anheuser-Busch. I, I grew up the river uh, across the river from St. Louis. You know, this is an enormous corporation. And I'll give you an example of just how the how you can get into a, a kind of silliness about this without even intending to. Um, a guy named John Cass, who was a columnist at the Chicago Tribune, he's an independent opinion writer now, posted a tweet uh, maybe about a week ago uh, of a picture of himself uh, with the caption, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, it's never Bud Light, ever. And he's holding a bottle of Stella Artois. That is also an Anheuser-Busch product. Now, I am not an executive at Anheuser-Busch. I have no role with Anheuser-Busch. I am going to go ahead and assume that it doesn't make a whole lot of difference to Anheuser-Busch if the people who are saying that they are going to boycott Bud Light are replacing it with another Anheuser-Busch product, especially considering Stella Artois is a more expensive product than Bud Light is. It's a better product than Bud Light is, not by a whole lot. But it is. So I'm going to go ahead and guess that they don't care all that much that that substitution is being made. And it, I think it gets to another point about boycott lifestyle that I have never understood. There, at one point in time, this is either proposed or maybe it actually did exist. There was an app that would allow you to go to the store and you could scan the barcode 
of any item that you were considering buying, and you could see the political contributions that were being made by the company or perhaps even the executives behind the company, because again, going back to Chick-fil-A, it's important to point out, there were no contributions from Chick-fil-A, the corporation, to any kind of campaign that opposed gay marriage or anything like that. The executives, different story, but the corporation itself did not make those contributions. So this app would allow you to know what kind of contributions were being made by the corporation and or by the executives before you made the purchase. And I remember just thinking at the time of reading about this, what an absolutely awful way to live your life. I remember another – I'm going to pick on the Chicago Tribune again here. um, Another columnist at the Tribune, former columnist there named Eric Zorn, had this piece about how despite growing up rooting for the Chicago Cubs, he was going to start rooting for the Chicago White Sox. And the reason is – the Ricketts family owns the Chicago Cubs. Um, one of the Ricketts is a current senator from Nebraska, the former governor of that state. They gave a lot of money to Donald Trump and to a bunch of other Republicans. That is the political affiliation of that family. I just can't quite grok what compels you to stop rooting for a sports team that you have cheered for for your entire life because you don't like the politics of the people who own it. Um, when, Especially considering ownership is probably going to change at some point in time. And switching to the White Sox is a really weird choice because Jerry Reinsdorf gives a whole lot of money to Republicans as well. So it's a very – again, it's like the, the, the Bud Light Stella thing again where it's like you're, you're still supporting the same thing just in a different way. Um, to your point that you brought up about the orientation of this marketing campaign, Abe Greenwald, a commentary, had a great piece that we'll put in the show notes called The Rise and Fall of the Spokes Troll which I think speaks to what you were talking about, Dan, with the orientation of this campaign. The goal was primarily to make people mad. Uh, There was a certain demographic that the politics of the ad executive, the marketing executive, and the people who helped come up with this idea, which again, I I think people should keep this in mind at least. We are talking about a very limited influencer based campaign where they sent personalized Bud Light cans to Dylan Mulvaney. This was not some enormous multi-million dollar national advertising campaign. This was a very niche thing that people decided to be very angry about. And there could be some very good reasons for being angry about it. I'm not quite on board with all of it, but I at least understand partly where that is coming from. But Abe makes the point about the idea here being that they're hiring, and other companies have done this too, spokes trolls, people whose purpose in advocating that product is to make a certain constituency out there mad. We have come an incredibly long way from Michael Jordan saying something like, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too, which is the right attitude to have. I, I am going to get declarative here and I'm going to say that, yes, the better attitude to have on all of this is the one that Michael Jordan espoused about his shoes from Nike and the reason that he didn't get involved in politics because they wanted him to endorse a Democratic candidate for Senate in North Carolina and he refused to for that reason that Republicans buy sneakers. Too. That is the right orientation to have about business and the products you're selling. 
is that anybody can buy them. Anybody who's interested in can buy them. And your politics should not be the thing that indicates to you, that decides for you that you are or not going to buy something. I want to bring up one uh, other point here about one of these other incidents that I did not bring up before, because I think this one is another one that connects to an issue we've talked about previously, and I do find to be a little bit more galling than some of these other examples. Again, we mentioned that it is Pride Month uh, at June on June 16th at Dodger Stadium. The Los Angeles Dodgers will have LGBTQ plus Pride Night. And one of the participants in this is a group of gay ex-Catholics called, who call themselves the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And what they do is they dress up in pseudo-nun garb and act in a very particularly provocative, arguably profane way. To draw attention, uh, the argument has been that they do some good work, especially for people who have been alienated from the Catholic Church. I will take that on its face that they absolutely do that. But what people had a problem with is the mocking of people of faith, particularly the Catholic faith, that these people do. And I think that's a very fair criticism and almost inarguable that that is what they are doing. And for the Dodgers to feature that was a very bizarre choice. So, again, I'm reminded of this line from Bill Buckley in this argument about the war on drugs, uh, particularly with regard to the government, that it lays these its traps for uh, these traps for itself in that it subsidizes, say, tobacco farming and then inveighs against the use of tobacco. You find yourself on both sides of the issue. The Dodgers first backed away and disinvited them, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And because they got a lot of pressure from people who said that this isn't right, this is offensive, and you shouldn't do it. And then they started getting pressure from the other side that says, you can't back away from these people. They need to be a part of it. So the Dodgers backed away from their backing away and returned to their original position where the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence will be a participant on June 16th at Pride Night at Dodger Stadium. And this to me draws back to the conversation we had about Ivan Provorov and the Philadelphia Flyers and their Pride Jersey Night and Pride Night, which is, as you know, Dylan, you pointed out about Chick-fil-A and as you said at the time about the Philadelphia Flyers, the obligation, the mission of the Philadelphia Flyers is to play good hockey. Now, they're failing at that mission as well. They are one of the worst teams in the National Hockey League, but that's what they should be striving for. And We get ourselves in these situations when we decide that – and I use this word advisedly, but I'm going to use it because it works and fits here. It is a very fascistic way of thinking that says all oars need to be pulling in the same direction, that all entities – that all organizations, that all institutions, all need to be moving society in the exact same direction. That, you know, a group like GLAD needs to basically be doing the same thing as the Los Angeles Dodgers, as the Philadelphia Flyers. And my concern from the right in their objecting to all of this is not that they're objecting to it in the way that, Dylan, you highlighted that the role of business is business, is that they want the power on their side. They want these companies, these institutions, these entities to be pulling all in the other direction. And it is no less a fascistic way of thinking about these things because the underlying politics are different.
Yeah, so I'm going to be a crank for a minute here. Uh, I I don't think anybody should have a pride night ever. And I don't say that because I have traditional values. I do. Uh, but that is not the reason. I think if you care about LGBT issues uh, and you're an activist, join an do organization, donate, whatever. If you care about traditional Christian values, join a traditional Christian church and be a part of that community and support it. Um, live those values. That's what you're supposed to do. So I don't know about you, but I think this extends far beyond this. So let's take something a little more innocuous. Um, and maybe maybe it's, it's totally harmless because it's at least not politicized or whatever. But if I go to like a ball game, and this has happened before, or a hockey game or whatever, and suddenly it's Star Wars night, then half of the game, they're trying to draw my attention away from the game to people sitting around me in the stands. I didn't come here for them. I'm fine with some Star Wars club showing up and dressing up and going to the game, but let them do their thing on their own, right? Like this weird sort of everything has to be a crossover. Every, we got to have a special night for every special person. How about you just play baseball? And the people who like baseball um, and who like your team will show up and watch and will cheer. And they'll, they'll have a fun time because baseball is supposed to be fun and hopefully is fun. And if it's not fun, maybe you should reconsider, you know, your game plan or how you're managing the team, all those things that are actually intrinsic to what baseball is and what a baseball, uh, you know, team is supposed to be about. Um, maybe that's too strict. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm trying to erect boundaries between different spheres of life that, that shouldn't be there. You know, maybe Kuiper would criticize me. Um, but I think most of us would be happier if that were the case. If you love Star Wars, go to the convention, go to Universal Studios or no, Disney or whatever, where they have like the big Star Wars. Oh, no, they're shutting that down. Sorry. Uh, they're, they're shutting they're down just, the Star Wars hotel. But, the uh, hotel, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there are still places where you can go and you can you can totally, and I'm a nerd too. So look, I don't mean this in a But you also got to boycott Disney but now, so You can go and geek out in, in places where that is the reason why people are there. Um, and you, frankly, as an individual, and like I said, as uh, you know, individual group, you can have like, hey, our Star Wars club is going to the ball game. We're all going to dress up. Fine, right? But when the whole game gets hijacked by some other interest, it's annoying. <laughs> and that's that's where I guess I'm a crank. I don't have a good like theological thing, although other than what I already said in terms of, you know, moral uh, sort of critique in, in terms of Friedman, but it's just kind of annoying. You show up for a ball game and everybody's like, hey, look over here at Chewbacca. Yeah, sure. Fine. Great. Chewbacca. You know, I, I, I like him too. Big dog man, whatever. But he's not why I came. I came to watch people try to hit a ball and, you know, nine people run around a field and so on and so forth. Um, and I just wish everything could be about what it is. <laughs> that's that's my cranky opinion. I think everybody would be quite happier if that were the case, including the activists. So just to underscore that point, you really care about a cause, right wing, left wing, Christian, non-Christian, be a part of an organization that's actually seeking to further that cause rather than just these kind of awareness campaigns, these virtual signaling, these hijacking other events that no one is really going there for that. Um, so there we go. Soapbox done. I'll stop being a crank, but maybe I won't, but, you know, I'll try. There's a very easy way to think through this. The first is that it is improprietous, let alone any other considerations, to denigrate someone's religion and to make it an object of fun. It just shouldn't be done. 
Also, you shouldn't hire people who do that to entertain others. You just shouldn't. That's very simple. There's another simple fact that there's a whole logic to exchange. And the logic of exchange is that I don't give you something unless I think what you're giving me back is worth more to me than it is. Otherwise, I just keep my money. There is, at the core of a lot of this thinking, a fundamental misunderstanding of that. That what we are engaged in when we engage in economic action is a zero-sum game. That it is akin to politics. That um, if I don't withhold my money from Bud Light, Bud Light's going to get all the money. And they're going to win. And that is just not how the economy works. The reason you enter into these relationships of exchange, the reason you buy Dodgers tickets is because you are more entertained by the Dodgers than you are by that money in your checking account. Now, something like this could change the margin on that. Maybe I enjoyed the Dodgers previously enough to go to one game. And because of this, that marginally changes in such a way that it doesn't make sense to go any games. Um, you know, that, that is something that people are the best judges of. But be aware that that is something that is an individual decision about your particular margins here. What the reality of the, of the world is, is that you are responsible for the choices that you make at the end of the day and that you are not responsible for other people. And if you get value and if your life is enriched by getting services from some corporation that does something vaguely along some aspect of the supply chain that is morally repugnant to you you are already walking away having gotten the better of them, have gotten more for your money than what you gave to them. And any account of this needs to think through that economic reality, and I'm not seeing any of that now. I'm seeing this as reduction to a zero-sum sort of culture war sensibility and a politicization of the economy. Yeah, I mean, war is fundamentally zero-sum. One side wins, another side loses. And there is a whole half of our social life, which is positive sum. Uh, and a big, big part of that is business. Uh, it is where, at least materially speaking, where wealth is created. Um, and that's not to say the zero-sum stuff is bad. We need law. We need family, all these sorts of other things. Um, but we also need business. Uh, even in the ancient world, before they had, you know, our modern understanding of economics, they still had trade. They still had exchange. They, you know, you could go to the Agora and you could buy things. Um, they could have done better back then. But it's just an essential part of human life. As uh, Adam Smith put it, there's a, a natural inclination to truck, barter, and exchange. Um, and... Failing to realize that, we end up uh, doing a really grave injustice to uh, a pretty essential aspect of our own humanity. Um, and yeah, I agree with I agree as well. The point about propriety uh, remind me a bit of Adam Smith, his other work, Theory of Moral Sentiments. Um, that there is, you know, in in all the politicization in the last few years, 
Uh, one thing that just does not get enough attention is the value of propriety. Um, I realize people don't like being nice. They want to take the gloves off. They want to get real. They want to win. They want to hurt their enemies, whatever. But you know what? Just being decent, being respectful, respectfully disagreeing with people, stating your difference of opinion, but walking away, not hating each other, that's an achievement might even be uh, a little bit virtuous nowadays, although that's not so much a compliment to anyone who pulls it off, but a a condemnation of where our culture has gotten. Um, But it's something that is too rare and something that we ought to value more and something that used to be pretty basic uh, about civil society. You make a good point about war being zero sum. And this is a problem that I've, I've always had in the way that we talk about the culture war. And I think people think I'm being pedantic when I make this point, And I really don't believe I am, which is I don't know how you win or lose a culture war. It, it is not a one. I have this long run problem now with um, and this being kind of a formula, a different form of it, of the war on different kinds of things. Like I want to declare a war on wars on things. Um, I was like, we do this and we declare wars on things that are you're never going to have a victory or a defeat over. Like the war on poverty. Poverty will always exist. The war on drugs certainly hasn't gotten rid of drugs. And if anything, drugs have won. Um, It just doesn't work this way. And I don't know what a victory in the culture war looks like because culture is an emergent phenomenon and there are different people who influence in all of that and certainly major corporations and media and entertainment and all of that all have a role in all of it. But it is not the kind of thing that we can, you know, if we just were to like win a, a, a stunning victory at the Battle of Waterloo, um, and in this case, Waterloo is a type of um, uh, flavored seltzer water. Um, it is. You can look it up. That's the Battle of Waterloo I'm talking about. We have this big victory and now we've won the culture war. That, that's not how any of this works. It is as ridiculous as the conversations that we had about cultural appropriation. The other term for cultural appropriation is culture. That's what we do. We appropriate different parts of other bits of culture and we make something that is original in some sense but is you know, an amalgam of all the other influences that we have pulled in. I've never liked this formulation about a culture war. I understand that we are having a political battle over a bunch of different things, but the formulation of it as a culture war was always and has always been problematic to me because it implies – that there can be some kind of victory that we're never going to have. So here's a good alternative, I think, based on what we've already said. Um, There is a concept called cultural exchange. I have friends with very different politics than me. I have friends who are very different religion than me. Um, But we get together and we talk and we have a great time and we appreciate each other and we know we're different. Um, But that doesn't stop us from being friends. I think... That kind of an outlook, if people, I mean, maybe it's just hard for people nowadays. Uh, I, I think it's a very sad way to live, to, to not be able to be friends with anyone that disagrees with you. I don't know how you have any friends at all at that point. Um, but hopefully people still have old friends from high school, whatever, that yeah, you've gone different ways, but you can always get together and hang out, you know, have a barbecue, whatever. Um, we need to start thinking in those terms 
about the culture as a whole. Um, and we see great things when that happens. You know, there, you know, think of like, you know, the whatever great music you like and your musician and all the the influences uh, that go into that. Oh, well, this guy, you know, they're kind of influenced by a little bit of blues and it gives them an extra extra sort of, you know, uh, different vibe to their to their pop music or whatever. That's called exchange, right? They're they're finding something great. They're not what they're doing is not blues. We talked a little bit about Ed Sheeran a little a little bit ago and, and playing within genres and all of that. Um, and but uh, you know, there's there's within the actual building of culture, it doesn't happen without exchange. Um, so yes, there are things that people get really charged about, and they care about the legality of things. They care about the morality of things, and I'm not saying they shouldn't. Um, that's not the point. But the point is. Some of these people are your neighbors, and you got to love your neighbors. In fact, to, to put it, uh, underscore this even more, let's say it is a war. Well, Jesus said love your enemies. So if you're at least a Christian, uh, you can't settle for it being a war. You need to find a different metaphor. You, you reminded me of um, one of my favorite stories I remember hearing Arthur Brooks tell, uh, which was he spoke at the, um, the National Prayer Breakfast, and this is at the time where he had just released a book called Love Your Enemies, which I recommend it to people. It's a good book. I like Arthur's work. Uh, and he, so he gets up and he gives this talk about his book, Love Your Enemies. And once he's done, the then president of the United States, Donald Trump, gets up to speak. And he says, you know, it's like, oh, that, you know, from Arthur, that was wonderful and all of that. But um, uh, I have to disagree with you, Arthur. And Arthur says, I just kind of muttered under my breath. I was like, um, it's not me you're disagreeing with. That's not, I'm not the person who said that, but let's move on. Uh, and let's move on uh, to our next topic, which is on Thursday, the United States Senate passed an agreement that will uh, avert the financial calamity that would have been uh, eclipsing, crashing through the debt ceiling in the same way that uh, the elevator in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory goes crashing through the top of the building. Um, I'll give you some of the things that are going to be in that. So they have suspended the debt ceiling until 2025. Um, this will, again, avoid any kind of a default, uh, or at least that's, again, what is claimed would happen if, uh, if we got to this point. Um, so the debt ceiling will be suspended. Uh, there'll be some caps on spending, but there will not be any caps on defense. Uh, Republicans had wanted a freeze on overall spending for 10 years with the rise in defense spending and cuts to other budgets. The agreement keeps non-defense spending flat next year with a 1% rise in 2025. The implications of this belt tightening as of yet is unclear. Uh, defense spending would increase to $886 billion, which amounts to a 3% rise on the year. There are no caps after 2025. This will also return some unspent COVID funds, which strikes me as a, a pretty good thing. Congressional Budget Office estimates that that's uh, going to be worth about $30 billion, um, which, again, is the kind of number that people should marvel at. But the numbers we talk about in these things have gotten so absurd that we don't marvel at $30 billion anymore. And arguably, $30 billion is not nearly enough. Um so we avert the crisis in raising the debt ceiling. Um, and we've talked about this before, but I thought it would be good to just make these points again. And if anybody's anything new to say, then that's even better. Um, but the main problem with these conversations 
is we never have the real important conversation because we're always dealing with the crisis of are we going to default and we're going to create global economic chaos because the United States begins to default on some of its debt. Because of that, we can never actually have a meaningful conversation on how much the government is spending, how much debt we actually have, and what we need to do about that. Uh, Here's where I have to invoke uh, our good friend David Bonson. Because the concern that we should be having, David Bonson, who's been talking for a while about how uh, the inflation that we have been experiencing does to a certain extent give lie to the old formulation on the political right that says inflation always comes from the printing of the money. And I think David is correct that if we look at you know what preceded the inflation that we got – was shutting down the supply side of the economy for COVID. So the demand comes back fueled, yes, by people getting $2,000 in their checking account from the federal government. But all of a sudden, demand surges back, which is very easy for demand for things to surge back. But the supply was not there to meet it. And thus, we get the kind of inflation that we saw. Um the long-term concern, and I, I am kind of believing in what David's theory is on all of this, is deflation is ending up like Japan, where the amount of economic growth we have and the amount of debt that we are servicing leads to just an absolute moribund economy that turned into a lost decade and multiple decades in the Japanese economy. We never get to have the conversation about these underlying fundamentals because we're always just trying to avoid the next crisis. And it looks like we have avoided the crisis of crashing through the debt ceiling. But once again, none of this is all that serious in dealing with the massive trillions of dollars of debt that we have. And as a result, we're going to continue to have, I think, these long-run deflationary economic problems that David talks about. But here we are. A few things. Uh, First of all, I know there's a lot of people upset about uh, this this deal um, to raise the debt ceiling and to prevent this crisis. Um, and usually there's there's a few different camps, but there's people who are upset that the thing they like might be cut or take some cuts. Uh, there's other people who are upset that there weren't more cuts. Um, tends to be, you know, economic left, economic right, but that really doesn't actually in the United States uh, entirely come out to Republican or Democrat or whatever. Um, it just depends on people's uh, sensitiv- sensitivities in, in terms of their, uh, their understanding of economics and their, their preferences there. Um, but I kind of think everybody should be happy about this, um, not because it's great, because uh, in fact, fundamentally, it kind of can't be great, but it's a compromise, and it's a compromise that will lead to real deficit reduction. Um, that's a very hard thing to do in the United States of America. It's unfortunate that that's a very hard thing to do, but it is. Um, if you are concerned about your favorite program being cut or reduced, there are some great programs out there. There are some bad ones. Um, but those services will still be needed. And I think it's a great time, once again, to think about whose responsibility is this? So I do think there's a place for a government safety net. I think there's a place for you know when, when the rest of society fails, uh, it, the very least as part of our social contract, the government should be able to step up and help someone who's down on their luck. Um, but the government could be doing a lot less if other sectors of society were doing a lot more. Um, so think about your churches, think about nonprofits, that sort of thing. Uh, when it comes to whatever service it is, uh, you're worried about 
uh, dropping off uh, and see what you can do. Th- those places probably need donations. They probably need volunteers. Um, they might even need professionals if anyone's losing their job in the government. Um, hopefully, they'll, they'll find one uh, in, in the nonprofit world. Um, so that's, that's the, the one side of it. The other side of it um, is, as I mentioned, you know, we, we have to, and we don't do this enough, but we have to ask that same question that we asked in the previous segment. You know, social responsibility of business increases profits. Okay, so what's the social responsibility of the family, the church, the government? Um, you would think that we'd ask this question more. I expect that if anyone were to write an essay uh, saying the social responsibility of government is, uh, you know, to uphold the rule of law, um, people would pan it in the same way they did Friedman uh, because they won't read past the headline. Um, but it really, really matters for things to be what they're supposed to be. Um, When they are not, when you blur the boundaries, to use a phrase from Abraham Kuyper, um, you end up with all sorts of confusion. In fact, he compared it to to pantheism. Uh, When we we go in expecting something in in our human worlds to be everything for us, um, we end up, well, you know, substituting it in some cases for spirituality or at least for our moral responsibility um, as human beings created in God's image and with the responsibility to properly love our neighbors. Um, as far as inflation goes, uh, I, there's definitely something, uh, you know, Bonson's not wrong at all about the supply side nature uh, of, or at least the, the forces. Uh, we did print a lot more money, and I do think that matters too. Um, but he's not wrong. It does, and um, he acknowledges as such. Yeah. I should yeah, point out. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and, but it's, he, he's, not, he's not wrong at all. So we, we, we shut down the economy, not entirely, but a lot, and then we open it back up again. And of course, there's going to be a lag in the meantime. So one thing he points out, for example, is we had all these uh, uh, boats, you know, shipping was clogged up. Once we unclogged it, what do you know? Suddenly inflation starts to kind of, you know, take care of itself. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty observable. Um, it's hard to argue with that. Um, but the points he's made, which I do agree with, uh, is that long term, our problem is production. So we have a steady, it's slow, but a steady decline in workforce participation. Um, and we have a steady, slow decline in birth rates. And unfortunately, we also have a decline in immigration. Um, due to a variety of policies and, um, you know, our very, very messed up immigration system. You put all those things together and you're going to have decreased production. And if you have decreased production, you have a supply side problem. Um, And that's something we should care more about because, once again, the good of business of creating wealth is a good in itself. It's a good essential for a flourishing human life. Um, and we should not just be okay with taking more and more people out of the workforce without adding other people uh, to take their place. And I don't take their place is maybe the wrong phrase because people get worked up about it. That's not what I mean. Uh, what I mean is somebody's got to do the work um, for us all to be living well. Um, and I hope more of us would find ways to do that, whether it be in remunerative employment or whether it be through volunteer and other supportive means. So David is right. And the answer to this problem thus cannot be won or lost in these budget negotiations year in, year out. What you need is sustained, robust economic growth. And you need to get over the very severe problems we have in the markets for education, healthcare, uh, real estate, and energy. 
And there was some talk in this debt ceiling deal about doing some permitting reform as part of that. Those are the conversations that need to happen. We have had 20 years of less than stellar growth. We're not at Japan. We're not Japan. We are still experiencing economic growth. Uh, the American economy is in many ways still the most vital uh, economy in the world, at least in the developed world. Um, when you look at comparisons with Europe, when you look at comparisons with uh, Japan, increasingly with South Korea, America is looking in a still better position. However, you know, we are going to need more economic liberalization and more innovation to get through these problems. Um, as a compromise, that ceiling deals okay, but this is this is going to be a continuing sort of crisis, low level crisis, until you get a fundamental commitment to pro growth economic policies, or you get a fundamental commitment to a much smaller state. Um, and I think it's going to be easier to sell those pro growth policies. Um, in our current political environment than it is going to be to uh, sell uh, minimizing the state. One final topic that may just be a mild rant from me, uh, so apologies for that in advance, but um, this is something that comes up every year on June 4th, and uh, in, in a manner of speaking, I wish I was just talking about the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, which I was in Washington, D.C. for a candlelight vigil on Friday night uh, to commemorate that and heard from a lot of incredible activists all doing great work, uh, bringing attention to the misdeeds of the Chinese Communist Party. But there's another anniversary on June 4th, which is this incident that happened in 2004 in Granby, Colorado, perpetrated by a man named Marvin Hemeyer. And if you've heard of this, you may know it as the Killdozer incident. And I will give you the brief summary uh, and just say that I, I share all of this because this aggravates me every year because I have a lot of friends in the libertarian community. And they uh, once a year, some of them will share this as supposedly some kind of an instructional or inspirational story. And I just want to put it to rest from my perspective that it is neither of those things. Uh, Marvin Hemeyer uh, feuded with the Granby town officials, particularly over fines for violating city health ordinances after he purchased property with no sewage system. Uh, over 18 months, Hemeyer had secretly armored a bulldozer with layers of steel and concrete on June 4, 20, uh, 2004. He used the bulldozer to demolish Granby Town Hall, the house of a former mayor, and several other buildings. He took his own life after the bulldozer got stuck in the basement of a hardware store that he was destroying. Uh, if you want to know the full backstory of all of this, there's a really great documentary that came out in 2019 called Tread. I will put a link to that in the show notes so that you can check that out. But um, I, I'm not even, in a way, I'm just going to borrow here from my friend uh, Sean Malone, who um, works at uh, Return on Ideas, a really great company, uh, used to be a foundation for economic education. And I'm just going to share what he posted because he and I are of like mind on this. Uh, observation. Every year, a bunch of edgelords share the Marvin Hemeyer story as some kind of libertarian hero. 
Quote, sometimes reasonable men must do unreasonable things, they will quote, while sharing killdozer memes. None of these people know a darn thing about the actual story, who Hemeyer really was, or what he did. They imagine him to be a clever, competent guy who was brought to extreme but deliberately non-lethal measures by a corrupt local government that was making absurd demands of him. The reality is basically the opposite. He wasn't the clever. Uh, he wasn't that clever uh, or good of a fabricator. He actively tried to kill a bunch of people who were largely only saved because he was so generally incompetent, and the local government was actually fairly normal. But over the last several years, I found that if you try to point this point out that he was actually a lunatic whose grievances were paranoid delusions, and they talk about this in the documentary, he left all these audio tapes explaining what his grievances are, and when they tried to corroborate them later, they found that basically none of them actually lined up. Really, what the city was asking was um, for him to pay, again, the, as I mentioned in the, the intro of all of this, there wasn't sewer lines on the property that he had purchased and built something on, and he... It was facing fines and the cost of building sewer and water lines there. It's a totally reasonable thing to expect from somebody. Um, but he tried to point out that he was actually a lunatic whose grievances were paranoid delusions. These people's response is to get mad, call you a statist, and or laugh, react. Um, again, we should not make heroes out of people who are not heroes. And Marvin Hemeyer was not a hero. It is not heroic in any way to just demolish a whole bunch of public and private property because you are mad about something. And that really, even in the best telling of the uh, pro-Marvin Hemeyer side of things, he was mad about something. So he decided to fit a bulldozer as a tank and destroy part of a town. Um, this is not the kind of thing that should be celebrated. It is the kind of thing that should be condemned. So hopefully, for those of you out there who are listening to this, you are not so online that you see this kind of thing pop up. But if you're listening to a program like this, perhaps you know some people uh, who are familiar with this story who might try to tell you about it. I just want you to know the truth and the background. This is not a person to be celebrated. These are not the kind of actions that should, should be celebrated. Destruction is not the kind of thing that should be celebrated in any way. Destruction is terrible. You know, this is goes back even to me to the same kind of arguments that we get about, um, well, you know, oh, wars are bad, but think of all that it will do for the economy. No, destruction Destroying things is just bad, and replacing them does create a lot of work, but it's a lot of work that otherwise would not have needed to be done if we didn't destroy the things in the first place. Um, So this man is no hero, and if you find anybody sharing the story trying to tell you that he is, he is not. Share the documentary tread with them. I think it will give you some good perspective on this whole story. So radical movements and religions share in common that they both need martyrs. Um, now there's probably plenty of libertarians that would not really care to be labeled radical. Um, but you might want to take a step back and think about what is this really about? If you get all prickly when someone brings up facts to you about a very, very sad incident that happened in 2004, because you have held this person up to be something they are not, Um, because they are not a martyr for a higher cause. They are a a poor, sad man who really lost it. Um, You might want to double-check how how noble your cause really is. Um, You know, have you made a political cause into a religion? That's a very bad thing. Maybe you should go to church. (laughs) Maybe you should try real religion. Um, But 
it doesn't help. It doesn't honor this man's memory. Um, this is a man who clearly needed help. Um, and, and holding him up as someone who had it all together when he didn't is not is not true to him. It's not honoring him. And I, I think, above all, we should care about every human person and their inherent dignity. And that includes even the sort of person who loses it and drives a bulldozer through town. Um, and the people who are think they're propping him up as a hero are not doing that. Um, and I hope that we can apply this to very, very many other causes as well. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes where you'll find a link that you can use to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. Oh, man, you should have been recording on all of that. That's... <laughs> Big fail. <laughs>